If you, if you haven't been here, let me tell you what we're doing. We, we're celebrating Advent. Advent is just a, it's a term for an arrival, a coming. And Christians believe that Jesus has two Advents, two arrivals. We live between those two. And so at Christmas, we celebrate and think about and sing about the first one as we anticipate the second one. And there's no requirement to do this. We have freedom to do it, freedom not to do it. But uh, we're going to join with the church around the world that thinks more deeply about some of these themes right now. So last week was the first Sunday of Advent, and we put what we had been studying down for a little bit. We've been studying a New Testament book, the letter of, to the Ephesians by the Apostle Paul, Ephesians. We put that down, and Lord willing, we'll pick that back up in the, in the winter. But uh, we're looking at really one part of one verse from an Old Testament prophet. We're looking in the prophet Isaiah chapter 9 and really just slowing way down and looking at these names of this figure that shows up in Isaiah. And I, I just quickly, I said last week, Isaiah is unfamiliar territory for a lot of us. Old Testament prophets are, t- tend to be unfamiliar ground for a lot of us. This is uh, written in the 700s BC. It doesn't have a real tight time frame. It covers multiple kings, multiple monarchies, multiple sets of things going on. And God's people are not doing well. They have fallen into idolatry. They are prideful. They are religious, kind of religiosity with idolatry. And God says some very confrontational things in Isaiah, very hard things through Isaiah. Another thing that is a problem is there's this growing Assyrian, rising Assyrian empire that is headed their way. And, uh, and they, they do not have the resources in and of themselves to, to stop it. But one, you know, one uh, commentator put it this way, there's this figure that shows up in Isaiah. And, and to use this, this commentator's words, he, he strides across the world's stage. And in this passage, you don't meet him as a man. He's going to grow to be a man, but you meet him as a child. That he's this actual child who's actually going to be born to an actual mother after an actual pregnancy. And, and he'll have these names. And let me say one more thing, and then I'll read these verses. Uh, for my money, one of the more confident figures that you find in the New Testament is John the Baptist. When you look at John the Baptist, how he came and prepared the way for Jesus, you meet him in the Gospels, he doesn't come along and say things like, hey, listen, thanks so much for coming out. Uh, We're going to be talking about some biblical texts, and if you're able to stay, please do. I mean, he just confronted everybody. You know, like the Messiah is coming, and his axe is in his hands, and it's laid to the, his winnowing fork, excuse me, is in his hands, which separates out. And the axe is laid to the root of the trees, and he's going to burn the chaff with fire. I mean, like, no holes barred. But there actually came a time, you can read this in the Gospels, where he was put in prison, and he hears about what Jesus is doing in his ministry. Now, this is the Jesus that John the Baptist pointed out to his disciples and said, Behold, that guy right there, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, And as some of his disciples became Jesus' disciples, John said, he must increase. I must decrease. That's what I came for. But that same John the Baptist, he hears about Jesus' ministry and he sends a messenger. He can't go because he's in prison. And the message is, are you the one that we wait for? Or do we wait for another? 
Are you the promised one? Or do we wait for another? That's John asking that. Why would he ask that when he was so confident? And I, I have to say, I don't totally know the answer, but I would suggest to you that one of the scriptures he may have had in mind about what he was looking to, to, looking to see happen and play out in front of him with the arrival of Jesus is what we're about to study this morning. So let's look at this. Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Lord, You are great. And You do not change. We change. We have changed since yesterday. We'll change before tomorrow, whether for better or for worse, we'll change. But You don't change. What a great God You are, greatly to be praised. And we come to you as we do just Sunday after Sunday, and we ask you to help us again. Thank you that you don't get tired of us asking for your help. Help us to hear you. Help us to sit at your feet. Change us, we ask, in Christ's name. Amen. Several years ago, uh, and I believe this was in um, Nashville, Tennessee, I saw a photo exhibit called Salvation on Sand Mountain. And it actually became a book. And if I'm not mistaken, there's, there's a documentary attached to it. But Sand Mountain is part of the uh, southern Appalachians. I, I think they grow good watermelon on Sand Mountain, if I'm not mistaken. But Sand Mountain is an area of the southern United States where you would still find snake-handling churches. And if you don't know what this is all about, first off, we don't engage in it at Downtown Press. Uh, second... It, it, where this comes from is, is a longer ending of the Gospel of Mark. If, if you, almost any English Bible you get now, if you look at the end of the Gospel of Mark, it ends at about verse, verse 8. But, and, and that's what the oldest manuscripts would, would demonstrate. But the King James was based on lesser manuscripts, and so it, it continues on with verse 9 to, I think, verse 20. And in that longer ending of the Gospel of Mark, it has Jesus saying, if you believe Him, if you follow Him, He'll give you power to pick up venomous snakes and tread on them and drink poison, and, and, you, and you won't be harmed. So there, there is a religious tr tr tradition where people, during worship, will handle venomous snakes. So this is a photo exhibit, black and white photos of, of a church on Sand Mountain. The picture I've never forgotten is of, is of a little girl, and she's standing with her arms up on the pew, like, like one of these pews, and she looks like this. She looks like every bored child at church with pews looks like. So she's looking like this, and you can't see the adults' faces over her, but one adult to one side of her is handing more than one venomous snake over her head 
and she's like this bored at church with like timber rattlers going over her head. Now, if you had any doubt that religiosity can get you just bored with anything, th that should drive it home. And you, of course, you hear that and think, okay, that's weird, but uh, yeah, that, that's, that's, that's not good to get, to get jaded and to get cynical or to check out or be on autopilot. But I want to suggest to you this morning that we have been doing that, and we are doing that, and, and hopefully with God's blessing, He's going to disrupt that this morning. <clears throat> Here's what I mean by that. Last week, if you were here, we sang a hymn called, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And we're actually, if you come to Lessons and Carols tonight, we will sing it tonight. There's some really amazing theology in good hymns, and there's some really amazing theology in good Christmas hymns. One of the stanzas in O Come, O Come, Emmanuel says this. So it's addressing God, saying, come to us. Addressing the Lord that we want to come to us. One stanza says, O come, O come, great Lord of might, who to thy tribes on Sinai's height, Mount Sinai, in ancient times once gave the law in cloud and majesty and all rejoice. Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. Now, do we understand what we're singing? What, what the hymn writer is saying is that read Exodus. Read what it was like when God descended on Mount Sinai and gave His law to His people. It absolutely terrified the Israelites. And these are not people coming out of, you know, sweet, rosy, easy existences. They're coming out of bitter, bitter slavery in Egypt. And they know what it is to do hard work, and they know what it is to live outside. But when they saw God descend on Mount Sinai and the way the mountain responded to Him, read the account. They say to Moses, you go talk to Him, you tell us what He said to do, and we'll do whatever He said. That's not how it played out, but that's what they said. But the hymn writer is saying, God, God who frightened those people, God who transformed a mountain so that it shook in your presence, the fire and the smoke and the voice, come to us as Emmanuel. Do we really believe that's who was born? This set of names, we could do many sermon series on, I believe. But this second name that we're looking at this morning one of the names by which this actual child, a real child, again, with a real mother after a real pregnancy, his name will be called Mighty God. So let's do what we did last week. We're going to slow way down and just look at those two words. I'm going to start with God, and then I want to look at Mighty. So first off, God. Now, in, in, uh, in the Bible, you get different names of God and different titles of God. One that you've heard before, I bet, is Yahweh. That's God's personal name. And in English Bibles, it's usually rendered as Lord in all caps. All caps, that's, that's Yahweh, His name. That's not what you get here. Another word, in fact, maybe the more common word that you would get in the original is Elohim. That's a plural word. So if it's speaking about the one true God, we say God, even though it's plural. If it's talking about other gods, those are other Elohim. Those are God, gods. That's not the one that's used here. The one that's used here is just 
L. L. And you've, even if you don't have any biblical background or much biblical background, you've bumped into this name before. Because think about this. In the Old Testament, you've got these patriarchs, very important in our history. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Okay? Isaac is Abraham's son. Jacob is Isaac's son. If you read in Genesis, there was a time where Jacob um, fell asleep and he had this dream, kind of dream slash vision. And in his dream, there was a stairway going from earth to heaven. And angels are going up and down. They're ascending and descending on the stairwell. And up at the top of the stairs is God himself. And he speaks to Jacob. And when Jacob wakes up, he renames that place. He says, this is the house Beth of God, El. This is Bethel. And by the way, the more familiar one, this is the same Jacob who wrestled with, it's, it's a very confusing passage. It seems like a man like an angel, or actually God himself. He wrestles with God. And after he wrestles with God, God renames him. That's an act of authority. Instead of your name being Jacob, your name is going to be Israel. God wrestles. God strives. Or he who strives with God. He who wrestles with El. That's a name of God. Now, this is interesting. Or, well, I hope it's interesting. I'm going to tell you what's interesting to you. Uh, This is interesting. Other, apparently, other people in the ancient Near East, people that surrounded Israel, they had an L. And they worshipped an L. And this is the kind of thing where scholars will take that and they'll feel like, wait a second, is so is are the biblical claims just one claim among many claims? Or, Or are we learning here finally that? Really, we all just worship the same God. We just kind of take different roads up, up to the top of the same mountain. Listen to this passage later in Isaiah. This is Isaiah chapter 45, verse 22. Because God knows, believe me, that other religions, other peoples have L's. But he says this, Isaiah 45, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am L, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no other. So, all right. What are we saying here? We're saying, God is saying through the prophet Isaiah, that the name of this child will be El. Now, if you've been around the New Testament, and if you've been around the church, and you've been around the teaching that you tend to get more at Christmas, you may say, okay, I got it. Do we? Um, Think about the Charlie Brown Christmas special. Can you have Christmas without the Charlie Brown Christmas special? I would argue not to do that. Uh, If you've seen the Charlie Brown Christmas special, you know, it almost didn't air. And one of the reasons it almost didn't air is because there is a quote from the Gospel of Luke And, you know, even in the 60s when it came out, it's not like everybody in the United States thinks the same thing about God or religion or or the Bible. But, of course, there's this scene where where Charlie Brown is just at the end of his rope. Uh, Just Christmas doesn't agree with him, and he doesn't understand it, and his friends are so mean to him. They're so mean. Don't you think every year that they're really even meaner than you remembered from the year before? You know, you're stupid, Charlie Brown. They're so mean. 
Charlie Brown is exasperated and says, will, will somebody tell me what Christmas all, is all about? And there's that famous scene, this is in the school auditorium, where Lana says, sure, Charlie Brown, I'll tell you what Christmas is about. And walks over to center stage, and you get that little voice, lights, please. House lights come down. And he quotes from Luke chapter 2, from the King James. And it's, you know, an angel of the Lord came upon them and the glory of the Lord shone round about them and they were sore afraid. Maybe that's familiar language to you. And then he goes back. And by the way, when he says that the angel says, fear not, I'm, uh, behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy. That's the only time that Linus ever puts his blanket down and talks with both his hands when he says, fear not. So it's very familiar to us, even like at a pop culture level. But I want to think about what Linus quoted, and I will quote it back to you, and I want to emphasize the words, the Lord, okay? And try to listen. The angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. In the original, they feared a great fear. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Do we understand what's being said there? These shepherds who fight off predators, who live outside, who are manly men, are terrified by just the glory of the Lord that is reflected by these angels. And the angels say, that Lord is born today. How in the world can L need to be nursed? How in the world can L need to be changed? How in the world can the God who comes down on, on Mount Sinai be a toddler and have to go through the normal human learning process of learning how to walk and acquire language. Because even if you didn't have the New Testament, you would have to ask those questions from this passage. The child will be called God. He'll be called the mighty God. And the, the word in the original there for mighty, it, it can be an adjective or a noun. It's almost like what we've done with the word creative. You know, creative was mostly an adjective, but now we've turned it into a noun, like somebody who does crafty work or does their, does their own art. We might call that person a creative. There are people you bump into in, in the Old Testament that are mighties. Uh, it's actually used of angels. Angels are mighties. They're mighty ones. And you know what, since it's Christmas, it's good to review this because we're kind of at a high watermark of angel exposure right now during Christmas. Angels in the Bible seem to mostly do three things. They praise God, they deliver very important messages, and they kill people. And I'm not kidding, lots of people. They praise God, they deliver very important messages, and they kill a lot of people. They're called mighty, mighty ones. There are actually some uh, soldiers and warriors that are called mighty ones in the Old Testament. For David, King David, had what we would call um, special operators, special operations. He had a lot of 
ground troops, combat troops, but he had like special operators, special forces. Those were his mighty men. Um, one of them was the husband of Bathsheba. Uriah the Hittite, to whom he was so treacherous, was one of his mighty men. So you get angels, you get people that are called mighty in, in the Scripture. What you do not get is anyone called the mighty God. You never see a warrior or an angel or a hero called the mighty God. Now, here's what I want you to think about. You may or may not know this, but Scripture is not bashful about presenting God as warrior. The greatest salvation event before the New Testament is the Exodus. And when God miraculously, supernaturally brought His people out of slavery, out of bondage, through the Red Sea, brought the Red Sea over the Egyptian army, wiped them out, landed His people safe on the other side. They sang a song, the Song of Moses. This is in your bulletin. Here's how the song starts. The Lord is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise Him, my Father's God, and I will exalt Him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is His name. Here's what a later passage in Isaiah says. The Lord goes out like a mighty man. Like a man of war, he stirs up his zeal. He cries out, he shouts aloud, he shows himself mighty against his foes. This is not the only image you get of God, but the Scripture is not bashful about letting it be one of the images of God himself. In the, in the chapter after our chapter, Isaiah chapter 10, it actually says this. A remnant, meaning a remnant of the people of God after an exile, a remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. So all that to say, no one except God Himself is known as the warrior God, the hero of a God, the mighty God. The prophecy says the name of this child will be the mighty God. God. Now, you may have heard this said, it's not original to me, that one of the things that Jesus does and that the gospel does is that it disturbs the comfortable, He disturbs the comfortable, and He comforts the disturbed. He disturbs the comfortable and He comforts the disturbed. How, how does the fact that Jesus bears the name Mighty God, how does that disturb the comfortable and comfort the disturbed? And by the way, if you weren't here last week, one of the reasons, not the only reason, but one of the reasons that I'm applying this passage to Jesus Christ and seeing Him as the fulfillment of it is because whoever has these names, like Wonderful Counselor and Mighty God, He's the one who will sit on the throne of His father, David. And that throne went unoccupied for a long time and then when the angel comes and announces the birth of Jesus, he says, he will sit on the throne of his father David. That throne will be occupied again and will never lack him as its occupant. How does Jesus being the mighty God disturb the comfortable and comfort the disturbed? If Jesus Christ is mighty God, here's the disturbance. We have to deal with him. I mean, you, you can put him off, 
for a time. But because He's the mighty God, He will ultimately make His presence known. There will be a day where everyone will know that He is the mighty God. Even people who have been ideologically opposed or just ambivalent, or I just don't like organized religion, every tongue will confess and every knee will bow because it will be so apparent to the universe that He is the mighty God. But, you know, right now we can be lulled to sleep. And we can sort of keep Him at arm's length. Here's the thing. If Scripture presented Him as one teacher of a religion... And hey, most Americans, you know, we're Christians. If, if, we, if you lived in Morocco, we wouldn't be having this conversation. But we're in America, we're in the South, so you know, here's a religious option for you. That's not how he's presented. He is presented as the mighty God with whom we must deal. And by the way, even for those who have professed belief in him and said, I do believe in you, I do follow you, and baptized into his name, we must deal with him too. Because we can keep him at arm's length too. You know, in the book of Revelation, there, there are these letters to local churches, and they're from Jesus to these local churches. In one of the letters, Jesus says to a local church, Hey, I commend you for this, I commend you for that, you did this well, you did that well. But then Christ says this, But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. See, that's the thing about. Jesus being the mighty God, the warrior God, is that He even wants to war against the thing that we keep you from Him. And He loves us enough that He will be opposed to the thing in us that preoccupies us, absorbs us, takes our interest and our heart away from Him. Why? Because He's insecure? Because He's needy? No, because He is jealous of the love of His people only He can satisfy. He made us for Himself to marry Him, to love Him and worship Him and have our hearts satisfied, to find our life's meaning and our true identity. And yes, He will even war against the thing that keeps us from that. But if Jesus is the mighty God, we have to deal with Him. Are you holding Him at arm's length this morning? And here's a biblical tension, friends. Sometimes the gospel in the Bible is an invitation and sometimes it's a command. And I would say, for the most part, usually at downtown Prez, when we're talking about the gospel, we present it as an invitation. You may come. Please come. Please believe. But sometimes it is appropriate, as Paul said in Athens, he now commands all men everywhere to repent. And that includes you. And this morning, you have heard from His Word that He is mighty. You will have to deal with Him. And, and what a terrible thing it would be for anyone that can hear my voice right now that on the day when you thought, maybe just kind of living off old lessons or old exposure to the Bible or something you heard from somebody, that you think, ah, you know what, I, he, at the end He shows up and everything's fine. What would be horrible is if you look for a face of a Savior, and there's the face of a conqueror, of a judge. But today is the day of salvation. Now that's to, comf- that's to disturb the comfortable, but let me comfort the disturbed. What would be wonderful 
would be on the day, capital D, that you realize it's the day. And I realize it's the day. And if our hearts are fearful that we're going to look up and see an attacker, a conqueror, a judge, it's the face of our Savior who's coming. Uh, May I read you a description of Jesus from the end of the Bible? This is almost the very end of the Bible. Uh, This is a description of Jesus. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which He is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following Him on white horses. From His mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And if you keep reading, you find out that war does not go well for them because he is the mighty God. Uh, Our prayer should be that every man, woman, and child repent. Turn to the Lord and be saved. And listen, the gospel is so big, it's big enough for human traffickers. It is big enough for murderers. It is big enough for financial hucksters. We should pray that all men everywhere repent. But at the end of history... Do you want sin to just be rehabilitated? Or do you want evil finally dealt with? Because the biblical vision, Old and New Testament, is at the end, the mighty God comes and He conquers death. I've been doing more funerals lately. I don't like them. And I'm not being flippant. We are to hate death. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. But somebody has to be the destroyer. Christ will be the destroyer of death. And, I, and I'll say this too. If you're here this morning and maybe you're new to this stuff and I'm throwing the kitchen sink at you, the devil, Satan, is a biblical figure. And he's not presented from Genesis to Revelation as mythic or symbolic. He's presented as a real entity. And even if you're here this morning and you don't believe that or you're not familiar with that, I would say this. I bet when you have interacted with real evil, it felt personal. And like it has an intelligence to it and a malevolence to it. And I would say, you're on to something. Uh, The reason that conspiracy theories tend to get so much traction, and anyone who has served on a committee knows that six people cannot run the world secretly. Seriously. But the reason that conspiracy theories get traction is that we feel that there's an intelligence behind things and a malevolence behind things. There's a theological basis for that. And if it's really true that at the end there is this figure who's just kind of the headstream of evil, like someone who would actually rejoice in human trafficking, rejoice in selling women 
and men for labor and sex. I don't want Christ to rehabilitate him. I want him to pierce him through with a sword and throw him in a lake of fire so that his effects are felt never again. Part of the good news is Christ is going to do that. And listen, all of us deserve that too. We deserve judgment. We deserve wrath. And when the Son comes, there's no refuge from Him. Psalm 2 says this, Kiss the Son, S-O-N, Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. There's no refuge from Him. As one scholar said, there is refuge in Him. Let me end with this. Uh, A friend of mine (laughs) found himself in a conversation with a dad this friend I'm talking about is a Christian. He was talking to a dad. Dad had a, a, a daughter who was like marrying age, and he was worried about his daughter. And maybe she had been involved with the wrong kind of men and just always had to have a man. And so this, this man said to my friend, he said, I, I'm just worried that she thinks that some prince is going to ride in one day on a white horse and make everything okay. And if it had been me, I probably would have said, yeah, yeah, I know, yeah, that's, that's not good. My friend actually had the presence of mind to say, Sir, i, I got to be honest with you. I'm banking everything on that exact thing happening. I, I need a Savior to come in and be mighty and conquer everything and every one and every institution that I, I can't. And I mean, start with, I know you've forgiven me my sin, and you've conquered my guilt, but just take the whole thing away from me. I don't want to feel these things anymore. I can't take deterioration away from my body. Take it away. Conquer it. Conquer Satan. Conquer death. Conquer everything that's cursed. Conquer it. He will. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you are a mighty Savior. You are the heroic warrior that we need. And we pray that you would tarry until all your people repent. You bring in all your people. Thank you that today is the day of salvation. But we also pray, Lord Jesus, that you will come and show yourself to be the mighty God and make all things right. For we ask this in your name. Amen.